Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Hello, everybody. If you hear uh, droning in the background, I apologize. It's my air conditioner. It is like 110 degrees here, and I am just not turning it that off. Yeah, it sounds like most of the rest of the country and or Canada is getting absolutely destroyed by a terrifying heat wave. 110 degrees sounds absolutely disgusting. Is it horrifying furnace heat or is it wet blanket uh, kind of oppressive humidity heat? Yes. Both. Yes. Yes. So both of them. <laughs> so when the sun is out, it's both. Uh, but it, since it's really kind of trying to decide if it wants to storm or not, it's the, co- the cloud cover is kind of heavy, thankfully. So you're lucky, though, because you actually have air conditioning, whereas yes. I do not. Yeah, you do not have it, and neither do our friends in the UK, which is, God, it's so, like, lethal to not have air conditioning with the way the, the climate is these days. I don't know why you wouldn't have air conditioning in England, because everything is always cold and kind of damp over there. Uh, whereas here, I mean, it's also cold and kind of damp on the regular, but it's not so bad that you need an actual air conditioning. It's, it's fairly temperate. Yeah, you probably have a nice breeze, too. Well, I'm glad I'm not suffering through this heat wave because I got a lot of work to do, starting with the fact that I am still currently playing through the Fire Emblem Three Houses review. It's a long game, but <laughs> I'm yes. at, I'm, I've got the finish line in sight and I should be able to get my review up on Embargo, which is next week. Yeah, oh, I can't boy. believe we're still a week away from Fire Emblem Three Houses. It's I've had this game for like a month. <laughs> Yeah, you've had it for a while, and I am definitely looking forward to playing it, and I am going to be on vacation when it comes out, I think, so I'm going to have to download it off some crappy hotel Wi-Fi, probably. Yeah, the hype for this game's been really strong, uh, pretty much across the board, and a lot of people, like, I think pretty much our entire team is picking up, except for Tom, who hates uh, every (laughs) game except Midnight Club or whatever, or PGR, like, it was Project Gotham Racing. Yeah, that's uh, that's his jam. But yeah, I definitely plan to pick it up. And uh, since uh, I guess it's good timing, so I'm still kind of playing around with Dragon Quest Builders, but it's pretty much done. So I'll, I'll be ready to move on when the time comes. Yeah, I would like to play through another Houses storyline because there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on with this, uh, with the differences between the campaigns. But man, playing through all three campaigns for like 150 hours is like. It's a bit of an ask, you know. That is. Uh, it's definitely something you might want to re-explore or go back to later on. I got a pro tip, though. Don't pick Black Eagle House first. Is it too boring? No. There are reasons. Oh, okay. So I, I have all intents in to, to choose the Golden Eagle House anyway. Sorry, Golden uh, Golden Deer House anyway. Yeah, I like Black Eagle House a lot, actually. I like most of the characters in there, even if they just fall into kind of broad ar- anime archetypes. Yes. Uh, you know, it's like the girl who's way too kind of, or Bernadette, she's way too shy, but her shyness has a dark backstory because apparently her father like locked her in a room or something. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds about right for Fire Emblem. And there's Dorothy, uh, Dorothea, I don't know, <laughs> Dorothy. who... <laughs> She likes hanging out with dudes, but apparently she's bisexual because she's totally willing to date me. Oh, well, there you go. Lucky you. Yeah, and there's Casper, who the Japanese players seem to hate because he's really? at the bottom yeah. at all the fan polls. Yeah, he's just your typical, like, hot-blooded dude who has an axe, and I put him on a wyvern and all was good. But oh, I, I like him, too. He's fun. He's also got the name of the ghost of Richie Rich. And there's um, this one gal who... I had her being a thief for a while and an assassin, but recently I put her on... I turned her into her Falcon Knight, so now she rides a Pegasus, and she looks like Valkyrie from uh, Thor Ragnarok. That's pretty cool, actually. The Falcon... I'm trying to think. The Falcon Knights, they've been kind of out of commission for a while. Nah. No, they're in every game. Oh, are they? Okay. I knew about the Pegasus Knights, but I know about the the Falcon Knights were the same thing. Falcon Hmm. Knights are the evolution or the class upgrade. Okay. Upgrading your class in Fire Emblem Three Houses is quite complex. Uh, mm-hmm. A little pro tip for you, Nadia, when you start playing, uh, map out exactly what you want your characters to become because oh you really want to start uh, putting points into the relevant skills immediately. Because oh. I don't remember if this was the case with Fates. It might have been. 
but there are like some pretty strict requirements for getting the characters up to uh, the top level classes, especially mm-hmm. advanced and master class versus in the past games where all you had to do was get a seal and boom, they could promote. Yeah. Yeah. It was very easy in awakening. Uh, ideally you kind of, well, people would call it fire emblem eugenics because like, depending on who you paired off your, your warriors with, the kid would be like usually specialized for a certain class. I'm still not sure how supports work <laughs> necessarily because it seems to have an impact on gambits, which are the having the battalions and everything, because you'll use a gambit and three people will pop up uh, cool. if you have supports with them. So that seems to strengthen the gambit. Hmm, that's interesting. Do and gambits not- seem very strong, but you have to put a lot of points into authority to be able to use the top level ones. And I've been kind of neglecting authority, so I haven't, I can't actually use a lot of the gambits. Are you like Ned Flanders' parents, like running out of ideas? <laughs> don't want to discipline anyone. <laughs> yeah, pretty nothing. much. Well, my character has all the authority. The rest of the characters don't. Because I've been so focused on trying to get them up to like master level classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, I wonder actually, speaking of the Falcon Knights, I wonder if the Griffin Knights are back? I mean, I don't know what a Griffin Knight is actually. In which case, probably not. Okay. Because... <laughs> I think they were an awakening, and the, uh. as their name suggests, they were griffin knights. I don't know what the benefit of the class was, except, well, they brought on a griffin. I think they were kind of in between, like, a falcon knight and a, a wyvern knight in terms of strength and speed. Gotcha. Okay, well, that is all of the Fire Emblem Three Houses talk for right now. I think we're going to get a guest on next week to be able to talk about it on Embargo. So mm, look for that should be interesting. To the full review then. I don't know if I'm going to get too far into spoiler territory since everybody's going to be playing it. Maybe I'll do a non-spoiler review and then a full spoiler review at some point and give you all of the Three Houses talk that you could ever want. But here's what we are going to talk about, Nadia. Uh The things that we're going to talk about are Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 and also Final Fantasy XIV Shadowbringers with the wonderful Mike Williams, resident reviewer and comic book fan. He has plenty of thoughts on those particular games. And, of course, we're also going to do the mailbag. If you like the podcast, uh, can I recommend that you subscribe to us on the podcaster of your choice? And even more importantly, leave us a nice review over on iTunes. Uh, We always enjoy Hearing from the people who enjoy the podcast, uh, it, we've seen a lot of nice comments over time. And of course, if you rate, rate us and review us, you will increase our visibility on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And we have a newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday. Nadia handles the newsletter. Nadia, what was the latest newsletter about? Well, it's actually funny because uh, this week's... Uh you know how the developers have been speaking a lot about Final Fantasy. Uh, Square Enix's developers have been speaking a lot about like what inspired them to make uh, like certain Final Fantasy games, uh, and they they had this YouTube series going on that's actually really interesting. And this week they covered some of Final Fantasy XII, and they covered the world of Evilise and how the real protagonist of Final Fantasy XII apparently is Evilise, the whole <laughs> the whole what? realm. What the entire realm, <laughs> like the place. Yep, that is what they consider the protagonist, not like, you know, Vaughn or Balthier or Fran or anyone. It's, it's Ivelisse, and it's like, you know what, I can kind of see that, because uh, I, as I have said in the past, and as I wrote in my newsletter, I think that Ivelisse is, you know, the most well thought out of the Final Fantasy universes, and basically just of Square universes in general, because of course Ivelisse is the the, the background for uh, Vagrant Story and for Final Fantasy Tactics. And uh, another thing that kind of helps uh, bring Ivelisse together, and I didn't mention this so much on the podcast before, is how the localization work is done by Alexander O. Smith, who is just inf- incredible at his work. And he is a big reason, I think, why Ivelisse really stands out and really has that glue that binds it together. And so I just, I just went off a little bit about that and uh, how much I like the world. And I've been meaning to actually download Final Fantasy XII from Switch and for Switch and play it there. Yeah, I would love to just sit on my Switch and play all these Final Fantasy games. 
I feel bad for putting Final Fantasy VII on hiatus, but there are all these games suddenly to to play, so a little too busy. Well, right it, now. it happened. Like I actually just went back to Trails of Cold Steel because I like you know finished with Dragon Quest Builders too, and uh, I'm still kind of goofing around with Dragon Quest Builders too, of course, building stuff. So, <laughs> but uh, I am back on the, the Cold Steel train. Speaking of interesting worlds, actually, uh, so we got some PAX West panels approved, and yes, Yay. we will be at PAX West per usual, and uh, Nadia, you are hosting a panel for Acts of the Blood God, along with Jeremy Parrish and Tim Rogers, and I think Ash Paulson from Game Explain, and which yes. you kind of go kind of... Not room by room, but generally you take a deep dive into Midgar from Final Fantasy VII and explain why it is one of the best and most iconic areas in RPG history. Yes, I will definitely have a focus on Midgar, but I will also probably cover a few of the rooms outside of Midgar. But Midgar, I think, in general is one of the most... Midgar, in general, has probably the most personality of any RPG city, I think. Just uh, those individual environments that are built up to every character that lives in them and works in them, uh, I, I think is just going to be a very interesting panel. Uh, my first, my first time hosting a panel, really, which is kind of terrifying. Wow, I mean, you're gonna kick ass, so and you're gonna be in good hands with Parrish. Yeah, maybe definitely. less so with Tim Rogers, who is an agent of chaos as much as I like him. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. Good luck. That's <laughs> Thank all you. I can say. <laughs> well, I'm sure if I stumble on my words, he'll be there to pick me up. It'll be a very entertaining panel either way. I think so. I think it's going to be fun. All right, Nadia. We are going to continue on to the next segment, wherein I talk to Mike about the MCU and also Comic-Con and also Final Fantasy XIV Shadowbringers and Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3. So don't go away. Okay, I'm here with Mike Williams, U.S. Gamers Reviews Editor, resident comic book expert. Uh, Mike, recently saw Spider-Man Far From Home. I'm way behind. I just saw Doctor Strange and Captain Marvel on an airplane, and I'm very excited to have finally been able to see those two movies. Uh, Mike, Captain Marvel was pretty good. It was. I, it, when you brought up in the works like that you just like watched all of them at once, I was kind of like... What? But then, I mean, hey, at least you eventually watched them. Captain Marvel was pretty good. And as I said in the works, like, uh, you said you also watched Doctor Strange. I was like, I, I think Doctor Strange is one I thought was pretty good in the original. But uh, I think probably looking back, it, 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 it would probably be lessened to me. I think Doctor Strange is one of the weakest Marvel films. Uh, even though I, I think Benedict Cumberbatch carried that film and all he was really doing was just being american sherlock kind of <laughs> yeah no i mean it, i think that's the problem like when you you go through doctor strange again it's kind of oh this is kind of kind of basic it's not particularly like too humorous it really relies heavily on sort of the visual effects doing stuff that visual effects you doesn't always get a chance to do with the fractal backgrounds and all stuff like that yeah, I like the visual effects. I thought they were clever. I thought the movie petered out at the end. I liked Captain Marvel a lot more because it was basically Independence Day. <laughs> it was. It was. It was. It was very good. Um, I'm looking forward to more. I, I think part of the the way that that story sort of goes off is like you get like the probably the first half where Brie Larson doesn't really get to emote a lot because of the way the character is sort of put together, and I saw more sparks uh especially once her and samuel L. jackson got to play off each other in the latter half so i'm like okay i'm looking i'm definitely i like that one i'm looking forward to seeing her like sort of stretch her wings a little bit more in a sequel yeah i would really like brie larson to kind of ha capture the warmth of say uh the captain america character or something to that effect because right now she feels a little bit cold um i totally agree that by the second half of the movie she seems to have settled into the character and she can kind of bounce around bounce off the human characters a lot more and she has decent uh, a decent rapport with everybody so i ultimately came away liking it and of, of course it was squarely in my wheelhouse uh it, even if it made me realize i was like oh okay the 90s were a long ass time ago now i'm just gonna have to deal with it <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, no, the 90s were a very, very long time ago. I, I forget what I was... Uh, when we were, I was writing the review for Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3, which we will talk about, I was sitting there and I was like, wow, so the last one came out in 2000 and I want to say, it's either 2009 or 2009 or 2009. It was 2009. And it was, so I was like, wow, it's a clean decade from the last one we received. And I was like, wow, that's a decade. And I've also been thinking about it because there's The Lion King and... The Lion King is what is probably like 15, 20 years old at this point. Oh, yeah. No, it totally is. Like, like my, my friends who have kids, their kids have not seen the no, previous sorry, Lion King. 25 years old, not yeah. 15 years old. Yeah, see, 25. So, like, my kids, my friends who have kids, their kids have not seen the old Lion King because they have all of their own animated stuff now. So for, like, them, The Lion King is a completely new thing. Yeah, I just have to deal with the fact that I'm freaking old now. (laughs) just how it is. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's odd looking back at stuff and you're just like, oh, that was only a few years ago. Oh, no, that's a decade. That's two decades. Oh. Well, I think about, like, I was in the theater in 1997 to see the Star Wars remakes. And I remember, like, I was like, wow, 20 years ago. That's so long ago. And somebody was like, oh, yeah, I was totally in the theater like to see this. It's going to be so amazing. And now, like, it's been more than 20 years since the remakes. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's definitely a, a generational thing, especially when you start to get into entertainment now where they, they remake stuff or they continue old stuff like years after the fact. So it's, it's just weird because I think they I, I saw also a news article with the new Terminator movie, Dark Fate, is bringing back Edward Furlong as John Connor from T2. Oh my god. He's right. had a rough life. <laughs> yeah, so I was, just, I was just like, wow. I mean, I haven't seen him in forever, so that's like like years, years out. He doesn't look so good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Honestly, I think Linda Hamilton might look better. <laughs> oh no, no, Linda Hamilton is spot on. It's one of those things like also uh, Top Gun Maverick. The trailer, which looks great. Now, this is weird that Tom Cruise hasn't aged at all. Right, but uh, I was talking uh, with someone else, and they were like, well, what about Val Kilmer? And I was like, well, uh, he also has not had the best of times since since his, you know, Batman and Top Gun and all those other days. Man, they've really managed to work out the perfect formula to appeal to all of the nostalgia like having Tom, having Maverick rip the the cloth off the motorcycle and riding along it. They even brought back the the guy who was in all of the '80s movies, uh, who was the principal in Back to the Future and the the angry admiral and everything. And man, he looks really old. Yeah, it, it's a little weird because I I think that the film isn't entirely about him because I think they they cast the other lead. I want to say it's Miles Teller as Goose's son. Okay, so they're going to have their own Shia LaBeouf uh, taking on the role of uh, Maverick. Yeah. Maverick 2, the Maverickening. Yeah, so I, I assume that like when they were talking about it before, that's supposed to be like a double lead, and, and Cruz was more the mentor. But that trailer was like, oh no, this is, this is just Tom Cruise again as Maverick. And uh, I mean, a lot of people are excited for that, and they made sure to have at least one shot in the trailer of a shirtless dude's playing volleyball, so they know their audience. This edition of We Are Old is brought to you by the Mike Williams Media Minute on Acts of the Blood God, the podcast for all people who are over 30 and just want to talk about how the 90s was a long-ass time ago. But, Mike, it's been a minute since we've had you on the podcast. We were well overdue for you to be able to do a Final Fantasy XIV Shadowbringers review, which you can go read on the site. Uh, you're very positive on it. And we're also going to talk about Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3, which is timed perfectly because it's uh, right on top of Comic-Con. Yeah, Comic-Con is this week, so we're getting movie trailers, news, comic editions, TV stuff. I mean, Comic-Con hasn't been like purely about comics for probably the last eight to ten years. It's, it's definitely more of a movie, TV-focused multimedia convention at this point. But uh, we're still getting the comic news. There's still new stuff coming. New X-Men is coming. Would you believe that I've never been to Comic-Con? Uh, I would. I've never been to a Comic-Con. 
it it sounds like a, a an immense hassle to go to it. Uh, so if you don't have to go, I, I wouldn't go. I've just never had much reason to go because uh, it's not great for video games. Generally speaking, you can get most of the news just sitting at home. It's much more TV and movie focused. It's obviously the Super Bowl for a lot of the pop culture sites out there. And I, yeah, no, I'm just kind of like going, okay, well, I beyond that, getting down to San Diego, which isn't that far ultimately, but I would still have to get a hotel and go to the actual convention and right. all of that. But yeah, all I'm that, sure there'd be some fun panels. Yeah, all of that is just, uh, it, it sounds like a logistical nightmare from people I know who do go to it. I'm just like, oh, that sounds horrible. All right, well, let's talk about the video games now. So Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3. So I guess you're a big fan of the previous games? Uh, I enjoyed them a lot until I played them again when they did the re-release. And then I was kind of like, yeah, you know, not every game ages all that well. And I, I felt that the while it's uh, had a lot of connections to the Marvel Universe in terms of characters and all of the costumes and all the villains... The game itself was just okay. I was actually kind of, and I, and I noted that in my review when I, I played Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3, I was like, oh, okay, well, this is Team Ninja. They actually went and looked and were like, why don't we add just, like, make the combat better. Let's add a little bit more strategy to it. Make it a little less dungeon crawlery. Like, it still is. It's not like a Musou or anything. Because uh, I wrote about how uh, Hyrule Warriors and Fire Emblem Warriors, which Team Ninja, uh, Team Ninja also worked on, probably helped them prepare for this. This is not a, a, a Musou or Warriors game, but they definitely uh, took some cues from action games to make it a little bit more dynamic and active than, say, uh, like a Marvel Diablo or something like that. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny when your review went up and people were like going, 75, well, all right, that's good. <laughs> like normally people would be like, oh my God. But people just seemed kind of ready to accept that this game would be good. Not amazing, not terrible, just good. Yeah, I remarked on that on Twitter because it was really weird because usually whenever I put up a review, I'll go into review threads on Reddit or Reset Era or other places. And, you know, put our review out and then sort of answer questions and see what the general vibe from people is. And usually what ends up happening for uh, probably last one I remember is Days Gone. Uh, when Days Gone came out and had middling reviews, there's a lot of like, Aha, I totally expected that. It's crap. Or critics don't know what they're talking about. It's a great game. You know, all, all, that's the stuff I normally see around a lot of games. But with Marvel Ultimate Alliance, everyone was like, oh, yeah, 7 out of 10. That That's pretty good. That's about what I expected. I'm in. I'm, I'm real happy about that. And so, like, the feeling that I, I get after reading a lot of that stuff is, like, we all know that the previous Ultimate Alliance games weren't, like, amazing games. So all people really wanted was better than the first two. Yeah, so I think it's interesting that the way you describe it, it's kind of a hodgepodge of all of the different sources, that it draws a lot from the MCU, but then it also draws from things like the PS4 games and the Marvel vs. Capcom games and the Netflix shows and the TV shows and the comic book arcs. I think that was an interesting creative choice by them. Yeah, it's a lot of fun because you can tell, like, if you look at all the art and stuff that... The primary choices, character choices, like the first characters that are unlocked for you, are definitely inspired by what is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's the Spider-Man, Captain America, Iron Man, Captain Marvel, you know, Hulk, the, the Avengers, the ones that everybody knows, and Wolverine, because they're, they are, are willing to use the X-Men again after a, a long hiatus. So those are the ones they put front and center. But also there are characters from other stuff. You know, you got Miles and uh, Gwen from Spider-Verse. You got the Daredevil, who's definitely inspired by the Netflix iteration uh, in terms of his costume. The Guardians of the Galaxy are more inspired by their MCU counterparts. But then, of course, there's like Scarlet Witch, who is literally like in her current comic outfit uh, and has her comic 
powers as opposed to the MCU version. That's kind of this weird, almost Jean Greyish kind of character. And then, of course, if as you're playing through the campaign, it's referencing some storylines that happened only in the comics, uh, notably the Inhumans uh, versus the X-Men, which is a recent crossover uh, that saw the Inhumans leave Earth uh, completely, is referenced directly within the campaign. So I was kind of like, okay, we're just pulling from, from pretty much everything. I'm glad you mentioned Spider-Verse, because that was another one that I finally saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very behind the times there, Cat. Spider-Verse yeah, only... Sorry. <laughs> But Can't it's keep good. up with all of the pop culture that's just spewing out like a fire hose all the time. Yeah, no, it, and it, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. I know, because the demand is insatiable. There are people who have no lives and can watch everything and are like, there's not enough. More. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, uh, I mean, we're already, we're probably going to get the announcements of the next phase of the Marvel Universe this weekend. I'm kind of excited. I'm curious to see where they take this thing. I think they've got a really strong foundation for the future. They do. And uh, it it sounds and looks like they're going to maybe play around with the stories a bit more, uh, probably spread out, have a little bit more of a diverse cast. So I'm looking forward to see what they're doing with it, especially the Eternals, which they have coming up. Uh, They have a solid director and a rumored uh, strong cast, but the Eternals in the comics at least for me personally, uh, have never been good. Like, I've never really, like, I've been like, oh, that's a fine story with the Eternals, but I've never been like, this is a groundbreaking Eternal story. So that's another one of those where I'm like, uh, can they pull this off? Like, can they make the Eternals good? So is the new core four, like Black Panther, Spider-Man, uh, Captain Marvel, and what? Who's the fourth one? Doctor Strange? Strange. It's it's going to be Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Strange. And then Spider-Man, I think they're always going to be fuzzy on. I think they're always going to put him as, like, fourth, just because... Well, it seems like, they, the, it seems like the other characters that are kind of around are the new Captain America, um, and also Bucky. And those are, like, more of the backup characters? Yeah, and but the trick with Spider-Man is, uh, I think... Far From Home is the end of the Sony Marvel deal, technically. Mm. So they have to see, like, I I think they're putting him in the fourth spot just because they don't know if they'll always have access to him. Although it sounds like Sony is pretty happy with it. And if I were them, there's no benefit to taking Spider-Man back out of the Marvel Universe. Well, it seems like everybody is happy right now because... Marvel get or Sony gets to put out movies like Spider-Verse, right? Spider-Verse was a Sony joint, right? Correct. That was Sony Animation, and, and they put out Venom, which was just straight Sony, uh, not anything to do with Spider-Man, and that also made a lot of money. So for them, they can still, uh, as long as they, they, they get to have their cake and eat it too, because they get Spider-Man in the MCU making a lot of money over there, and they get to take uh, Spider-Man-adjacent characters and do their own thing with them. Yeah, we've entered peak comic book, but <laughs> we spend more time talking about pop culture and Comic-Con stuff than we are uh, talking about the actual games here. But, uh, I don't know, Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3. Uh, you talk at some length about the actual like tactical strategy about it, which sounded cool, like their extreme gauges, their, the characters can work together. Uh, what I'm curious is, uh, I've always kind of conflated the... The, Leg- the X-Men Legends games and the Marvel Ultimate Alliance games with the Diablo series. How strong is the loot in this game? The loot is not as good. So so in the previous games, the loot was like named. Like it'd be like Scorpion's Tail, which, in, you know, increases attack or whatever. Um, so like the loot was also this sort of hey, let's read some interesting stuff about the Marvel Universe, or, oh, that's a cool... In this, all of the loot is called ISO-8, which is a... not currency, but it's it's a thing they introduced for the mobile games. And basically, the each ISO-8 uh, falls into six different colors that correspond to the six different stats. And then, it you know, 
adds 10% to strength or adds 50 strength or adds, you know, 100 durability. So it, it's all pretty basic loot. Like, it doesn't change the look of the character. It doesn't have any sort of interesting hooks or story behind it. It's just... And that's why I, I put a screenshot in the review of it and mentioned it, but I didn't talk much about it because I had already written like 1,900 words and I didn't think it was really all that worthwhile. Yeah, and what about the end game? Uh, so the end game is mostly either taking... So the way it works, uh, unlike one of the previous games where you're like, as you would level, all the characters would sort of gain some experience. In this one, whoever you're using is gaining experience. Everyone else is sad and alone. So like, I hadn't used Captain America since the very beginning. So Captain America, if I start playing him now, is at like level six. So in-game breaks down to leveling up other characters uh, through the campaign playing with friends, which again does the same, or there's a whole series of trials, which are challenges that take certain sections of the main game and say, hey, try to do this uh, in a different way, such as, hey, try to defeat Ronin, but the only thing that does damage is synergy attacks. Uh, which changes it up. And then, of course, each trial has three different objectives. One of them is usually complete the trial. The second one is, like, do it without dying or, or do it without losing one of your, your people or something like that. And then the last one is usually time-related. Uh, and the last one is usually the hardest one. So it's like, ah, uh, defeat Ronin only using synergy attacks in five minutes. And... These trials are pretty much the way that you get further XP cubes to, to level up characters. They're the way that you unlock four of the characters in the game, period. And they're a way to get alternate quote-unquote costumes for the certain characters, which at this point are just uh, color swaps. But... Uh, Marvel announced yesterday that they're releasing alternate costumes for every character throughout, uh, up until like 2020. So ultimately, would you say that Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 is a good pickup for RPG fans who may enjoy comics, but aren't like hardcore comic super fans? Uh, it might be. It's kind of hard. It's it's kind of a hard game. I was surprised. Um because I was blowing through it for the first probably two or three, nah, probably like four chapters. And then it just, it it hit hard uh, at a certain point. And some of that was due to underleveling. But some of it is just due, like the, the last group of boss rushes, it's like, you need to actually... Like, when I play Diablo, even at the high end of, of Diablo, I'm like, or Torchlight, I'm like, hey, this is this is not that bad. It's just a, a matter of being the right level. But in this one, you need to dodge. You need to synergize. I haven't played it at the easiest level. I think the easiest level might be fine for a lot of people. Uh, I started at Mighty, which was the normal level. It's a shame that it's a Switch exclusive, but apparently has some performance issues on handheld mode, which is kind of par for the course for a lot of these games. Yeah, um, and in fact, that is a thing that I am writing today... Uh, which, by the time this comes out, it'll be uh, Friday. About the fact that developers need to start thinking of the Switch as a portable platform. Uh, like, currently, right now, the portable side is second banana. They, they want to make sure that it works on docked to the best of its ability, and then portable is kind of like, ah, you know, if we get there or not. And I've remarked in reviews, a lot of it, a lot of the problems tend to be text size which are, are are scaled for televisions and then when you try to play it on the, the handheld it's it's like tiny but i i've seen a lot of cropping up the performance issues and marvel ultimate alliance is three is definitely meant to be played on the tv 
And if you play it portably, not only are there performance issues, but there are certain sections where the game will scale the camera out. A lot of boss battles are like this. So you can see all of the boss attacks and dodge them and, and move out of the way. But the problem is, is this ends up making your character really small. And on a TV, that's fine because with the colored outline, you're like, okay, I know about where I am. But on the portable, it's just like, I have no clue what's happening right now. Yeah, and it's especially paramount given that the Switch Lite is coming out and it's going to be handheld only. Correct. And is no doubt going to be the budget version that a lot of people end up buying into. And, I mean, I don't have a ton of faith that Pokemon's going to run super well on this thing, even though it's going to be... Uh, you know, one of the Cadillac games that people are buying it specifically for. Yeah, right now developers are targeting the docked and then the portable is the afterthought. And especially with the Switch Lite coming out, they need to flip that. All right, let's talk about the game that maybe a lot of people, or at least some people in our audience will care about. And that is Final Fantasy XIV Shadowbringer, the latest expansion to Final Fantasy XIV. Final Fantasy XIV has done an amazing job of kind of cementing itself as the other major MMORPG along with World of Warcraft. I think it's a pretty clear number two at this point, right? Uh, It's a pretty clear number two, but also uh, probably in the recent months there's been sort of a smaller exodus because Battle for Azeroth hit sort of a content lull and it didn't feel like Blizzard entirely knew what they wanted to do with it. So at the same time this is happening, we're hearing more about 14. So there is a large amount of, I'll say it's apocryphal, there's a lot of people that are saying they have left WoW for 14. Uh, I don't yeah, know. Well, what... I mean, wow, it's pretty long in the tooth at this point. I mean, seriously. Right. So I, I don't know the exact impact of that. So that's why I haven't like gone out and say this is a thing that's happening. But there are a lot of people that say that. And there are a lot of people who are, uh, especially over in the 14 communities, are like, hey, this is my first time playing Final Fantasy 14. I was playing WoW before now, and, you you know, yada yada, I'm loving it, or I'm not loving it, or whatever. I always have a hard time recommending 14 to people who aren't already playing it because I love it, but uh, you pretty much have to play to get the full impact from the beginning to where you are now. So they introduced with Stormblood level skip potions, and they're now so it'll take you to the start of this expansion but you'll miss a lot of the character moments like you won't be as attached to the characters as if you had been playing the game from the very beginning of a realm reborn oh i would definitely start from the beginning and play all the way through it's just so much content at this point yeah it's it's uh, the numbers are pretty high someone said it was like 200 hours total uh matt did the whole thing i was surprised that matt did the entire thing like matt just was like yeah a friend got me into ff14 and when Shadowbringers was rolling around he was like yeah i I'm, i caught up i was like i was surprised i was shocked Dear departed Matt Rip, we will will remember you in our dreams. At a certain point, I think you just have to make hard decisions about what you want to invest in. And I just don't really have the time to invest into Final Fantasy XIV, which uh, I I have nothing against Final Fantasy XIV. I would like to be able to play it, but... I have other games and activities in my life. Oh, I, I totally I know that. To be focusing on uh, Legend. Uh, we just uh, put up a a, a, a interview uh, with Nihon Falcom, and they have the uh, Legend of Heroes: Trails in the Sky and Trails of Cold Steel. Both sets of games I own. All three games on a certain platform. I, I forget which ones, but. Um, they're so long, so I've never... I, like, look at them, I'm like, maybe I should start them. I'm like, no, I don't got time. Uh, and, and that is a, an increasing problem, not just... I mean, we were just talking about movies, movies, television, streaming, games. Though We have more than enough entertainment. So... Uh, yeah. You gotta start making strategic decisions with your entertainment. But, 
if you do decide to get into Final Fantasy XIV, it is very well regarded, uh, much loved game. And I think the thing that stood out to me about reading your review, which is a glowing review by most respects, is that it is, quote unquote, the most Final Fantasy of all of them, which I found interesting because most people would say that Final Fantasy XIV is the best Final Fantasy game in years and is extremely faithful to the tone and spirit of the, of the series. So, so fourteen, uh, and, and I wrote this in the review, it, it has a lot of hooks to Final Fantasy. It's always had like uh, Choco- Chocobos, Black Mages, Dragoons, all that stuff. In the actual storylines and the things that are happening in them, A Realm Reborn's plot was largely concerned with sort of explaining away how A Realm Reborn happened after the disastrous first launch of Final Fantasy XIV. So it was a lot of, like, metaphysical, like, there's some gods and monsters. There was, you know, Rama and Alexander and all that stuff, and, and they showed up. But the story itself was more about, like, here, we're, we're fixing the world after this calamity. Heaven's Word is definitely closer to that Game of Thrones, uh, warring houses, you know, War of the Roses fight between the clergy and various noble houses and stuff and most of that story is about that with a smattering of dragons and then stormblood is a story about revolution and freeing two places from an occupation like a hostile occupation and those are stories that can happen in final fantasy but i don't necessarily think that they would be the focus of a final fantasy like they're they're the the disc one of Final Fantasy VII, which is about eco terrorists uh, trying to fight a corporation, not the other discs of Final Fantasy, which are about saving the Earth and the life stream and Sephiroth and Genova and all that stuff. And Shadowbringers is definitely like from the beginning of it a lot more of that like the sin eaters and the city you'll find a city of an ancients and ancient people who are bringing back old gods uh spoken of in in hushed calamities and it's very very much what i consider uh the way a final fantasy story usually goes I thought it was interesting that it also plays so on your kind of familiar familiarity with the game's areas. The first thing I thought when I was reading it was, oh, they kind of went with a cataclysm type thing. But not really, though, because they're not completely remaking the game's opening areas or anything. Right. And then so the way that the, the plot works is there are different alternate realities called shards. Yours is the source, which is the primary one. And... All of Shadowbringers takes place in the first, which is a world that has been overrun by the element of light. So there is no night in there. It's always daytime. And these creatures called angelic-ish creatures, which again is another very Final Fantasy thing to me because they love their uh, weird pseudo-Christian mythology and stuff. Creatures called Sin Eaters that turn people into other saniators, which are these white, angelic, beatif-looking things. And it's it's just a weird story, but it's definitely, it feels... Uh, and a lot of the boss's attacks are, are very much Final Fantasy-esque. One attack that I just went through in a raid was literally like a, almost a FF8, FF7 summon, and that the boss, like puts a circle around us and then it zooms out to the earth and then it zooms out and shows like a black hole and then the part of the earth with the circle is slammed into the black hole i was like yeah that's this is pretty final fantasy now guys come on (laughs) (laughs) i got i love the way that they really nail the visual look of final fantasy it's really great yeah no and and they're doing a lot of, of of really good stuff and i i think First and second, uh, A Realm Reborn and Heaven's Word were like, what, what is Final Fantasy XIV supposed to be? And Stormblood is sort of, we're, okay, we got it. We understand what it's supposed to be, but let's not go too crazy. 
I think Shadowbringers is like, okay, we know exactly what we're doing. We know what our game does well. Let's just go at it. Let's go hard. And I, I think they, they did a really good job with it. It's it's just a, like a fantastic story expansion. And everyone's really satisfied. So again, this is one of those things where like WoW is sort of at a slight lull and Final Fantasy is looking pretty good. And I don't know if that the exodus is real, but it feels like 14 continues to chip away sort of at WoW's dominance. Which is not to say the that it's... With Final Fantasy, the problem with Final Fantasy XIV, from what I've been able to kind of glean, is that uh, there will be these gigantic expansions, and there will be uh, a decent update at some point in the next year or so, but it doesn't near, do nearly a good job, as good a job as WoW of putting out content, so the population will probably drop after they finish it. Yeah, they tend to do every three months, and part of WoW's problem recently is they've sort of they've sort of struggled ish to get into a same content update thing. So square is about every three months, they'll do a story patch, but Yoshida, uh, Naoki Yoshida, the director and executive producer of the game has said that he's mostly fine with that. Um, he's like, we have stuff so that you'll always be playing the game on a consistent basis, but we realize that you have other things to do. And if you play for the expansion and then go away and then come back for the next story patch and then go away, like they're fine with that because yeah. And I think um, predictability and regularity can really work in this case because you know, it's like, okay, it's every three months. I I will finish this like piece of content. I know that in three weeks, three months, I can check back and find a nice meaty new piece of content to play through with my friends. And so you never feel overwhelmed, but at the same time, it doesn't, it's not completely out of sight, out of mind. Correct. And and also what they're probably betting on there, I'm guessing is people who go away, but don't actually cancel their subscription, which is probably a lot of people. And, and that's always a net win for a company because you're paying $15 a month but not playing, so you're not taking up any bandwidth or anything. So in terms of the new content, there's a fair amount there. So there's a, a new system called the Trust System. What's that all about? Okay, so this is actually probably the most interesting new feature that they added. Basically, so the way that Final Fantasy's main story quest, and, and I'll talk about WoW briefly here, is you play through a bunch of sort of solo missions yes other people are around but you generally don't have to acknowledge their existence uh and that's pretty much the same as the wild model you know you go to a hub you get a whole bunch of quests you do all the quests you come back to the hub turn them in you get the next series of quests there's some cutscenes in there to deal with the main story but the trick with final fantasy over wow is sort of when you finish a zone in either game they'll put a dungeon at the end uh, and the dungeon always has to be run with other people. So what WoW would do is they'd sort of put the dungeon there, and that'd be optional. It does finish the story, but you already got sort of a, an, a, a satisfying ending to that zone, like at the end of the zone's quest that you can do solo. With Final Fantasy fourteen, until you finish that dungeon you can't move on to the next part of the story. So you have to play with others at some point, or, or you have to do a trial with his, uh, you know, like eight people at some point in order to continue the story. And what trust does is it allows you to run a dungeon with three AI players. If I'm a tank, uh, which is what I normally play, I can uh, designate, and these, these trust AI characters are story characters, like the story characters that you've carried forward for a while. You can designate them as, hey, like, you're a healer, these are the two DPS, let's go run a dungeon. And they're actually pretty decent at running dungeons, because, you know, they're already programmed to know the patterns and stuff. So it's just a way for, if you're a mostly solo player who's doing the story, you can just keep going without ever meeting up with other people. Uh, you'll still have to do it for the trials because trust does not work trials. It's only dungeons, but overall it's, it's a pretty good system for allowing players to just continue soloing. 
the only major problem that it has is that it's only for Shadowbringers dungeons. So it doesn't go back. So you still have that same problem for Stormblood or Heavensward dungeons or Realm Reborn. Okay, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Viera. And I, I know this is a pretty controversial thing that when they announced it that they would be a female class only. And you expressed kind of reservations about it in your review. Uh, I did. So the and from talking to Oshida, the, the, the thrust of it is they had the budget to implement another race. And that race would have probably been all Hrothgar, like male and female Hrothgar. But they had heard so much about the Viera that they were like, okay, we'll do Viera too. But we only have the budget to do one full race, male-female. So let's do Hrothgar male and Viera female, which I sort of think is a split between what the developers wanted and what the fans wanted. The fans wanted Viera. I get the feeling that the developers wanted Hrothgar. I don't think either side is particularly happy with a, that, that sort of compromise that was made. Uh, although I have seen a ton of Viera in the game, so obviously at least some people are very happy having their Viera character. I mean, who doesn't want to be a Viera, right? Right, right. It's just a lot of people wanted bunny boys. and this, I mean, who doesn't want bunny boys? Yeah. Come on. This, this is going off of a previous issue that they had a bunny outfit that you could get from the Gold Saucer. Again, another Final Fantasy thing brought into this. It's a big gambling area. But you could get a bunny outfit. When they launched it, it was female only. And everyone was like, hell no. This needs to be for everyone. And eventually they allowed you to have a bunny outfit for the male characters as well. Because glamour, by the way, is uh, a lot of people say glamour is the real end game for Final Fantasy XIV. And glamour is this system where you can put any... Like, while you're wearing a specific armor for stats, you can put any other appearance over it. So, I will frequently run dungeons with people in, like, chaps or swimsuits or sweaters or, like, suits or whatever. Because that's that's how they want to do it. Uh, I don't know. I, for me, that would break the uh, immersion in the story. Because whatever your character is wearing is what they're wearing in the cutscenes. And I, I can't imagine uh, they're being like, oh, hey, Warrior of Light, there's a big calamity happening and you're over here in like a sweater and like a frog helmet or whatever. But I mean, different strokes for different folks. Do whatever you want. Okay. And just really quickly, let's talk about the, the new classes your impression seemed to be that Gunbreaker is a little underwhelming and Dancer is a bit OP at the moment. Yes. So we just received patch 5.05, which did a couple of tiny nerfs, but there's a patch coming up soon that will have further class balance changes. Gunbreaker's problem right now is it's not as defensive it's a tank role, so that's Paladin, uh, Warrior, Dark Knight, and now Gunbreaker. Um, it's not as defensive as Paladin, but it's also not as damage-oriented as Warrior or Dark Knight. So it's kind of middle of the road. And it, it's fine, but it doesn't... Like, its identity comes from visuals, not from play. So I just think they need to rethink that just a tiny bit. Dancer, on the other hand, is very powerful. Um, it's supposed to be a DPS, but you can do a decent amount of healing. It buffs. It's a ranged class, so it attacks from range. And then it has this thing called the partner system where you, you mark a dance partner. And whenever you finish a dance and get a benefit, healing, buff, whatever, uh, the partner also gets the benefit. So it's just... It makes dungeon runs a lot faster. It makes raids a lot faster if you have a dancer around. Bard can do the same thing, but Bard isn't as strong. So Bard is now sort of like the sad dancer job. Which, you know, if you're a Bard, I'm sorry. I apologize. 
I mean, if you chose Bard, hmm, I, I don't know how I can help you. Sorry to all the Bards. Out there. Yeah, uh, I, the one thing Bards do get, I, I was playing last night and there was a Bard. Bards have the ability to actually play songs like in real time. They added that, I think, in Stormblood. Uh, and there was a Bard just in one town that was playing the Gerudo theme. Like, they were muddling their way through it, but it was definitely like the Gerudo theme from Zelda, the Gerudo Valley. So I was like, okay, yeah, all right. I know there are bards like that, but as a playable class, I'm, eh, they're okay. Yeah, you did pick bard. No one likes bards. So all told, it sounds like Shadowbringers is another really successful expansion for Final Fantasy fourteen. So in your review, you talked about how in a Realm Reborn, it was mostly about kind of setting the scene in uh, Stormblood, it was revolution. Uh, what was uh, Heaven's Word was more about kind of the real politic, right? Right. And this one is about being more of a pure Final Fantasy type experience, which if you compare it to World of Warcraft, it was much more of a like, each one was like, and here comes a new villain, and here comes another new villain from the WoW universe, and it's still another villain. And, oh, we've kind of run out of ideas. Crap. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Wow, uh, Wow's expansions are definitely more villain focused. They're like, this is who you're going to be fighting for this expansion story, and that determines where the story is taking place and what you'll do during that story. Um, whereas there's some of that in Shadowbringers, uh, sort of they they surface the Sin Eaters, but. I don't necessarily think that's that that's the same kind of focus because uh, WoW tends to put the villain front and center. Whenever they release their first cinematic trailer, the villain is usually the focus. Like uh, uh, Wrath of the Lich King had the Lich King, Burning Crusade had Illidan there. Um, like each one shows who the villain generally is. Whereas this is more about what's the overall thrust and ebb and flow of the story itself all right any final thoughts about shadowbringers if you have the time get into final fantasy 14 it's it's a lot of fun you can there's been a couple of sales for the shadowbringers set like i think shadowbringers and the complete edition you can get for like 60 70 bucks and then if you're super lazy you can just pay for what they call tales of adventure to level one class up to 70, which is the beginning, uh, the level uh, needed for the beginning of Shadowbringers content. Yeah, I, I think that it does start the tiniest bit slow just because you're doing your usual uh, World of Warcraft style fetch quests. But by all accounts, once the story gets going, it really picks up. Oh, Realm Reborn is, is, is pretty slow. Uh, at times, and especially there's a gulf between the end of a realm. Basically, they have the expansion story and then the mid-expansion stories. The transition from a realm we're born to Heaven's Word is really slow. Like, really slow. All right. Thanks to Mike for coming on and talking about Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 and Final Fantasy XIV Shadowbringers. I invite you to go read his reviews of them over on the site and of course if you want to hear all of his thoughts on comic-con and movies and comic books and whatnot you can follow him on twitter at automatic zen all right mike thanks very much and we're going to continue on to the mailbag And we are back. Thanks so much to Mike for being willing to sit and talk about Final Fantasy XIV Shadowbringers. And apologies for being a little late in that review. The timeline ended up being kind of crazy because obviously I was on vacation and then all mm -hmm. this Fire Emblem Three Houses stuff dropped. So, But yeah, so thank you for your patience on that one, Final Fantasy XIV fans. You are remembered. <laughs> you are definitely remembered. Um, I have a lot of friends who are really deep into Final Fantasy XIV right now, and uh, I'm kind of jealous. I really want to be there with them, but God, who has the time? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, why don't you play it? It seems like it's squarely in your wheelhouse. 
It really, really is. And I know for a fact that I would love it. And... I don't know, maybe when I come back from vacation, I'll see about getting uh, a subscription. I almost said prescription. (laughs) (laughs) Prescribe me some Final Fantasy, please. And for what it's worth, Mike says that the latest expansion is the most Final Fantasy of them all. Well, yeah, I mean, even here, even me, I'm here like, oh, that's the name. They named it after uh, Cecil's last Dark Knight sword in Final Fantasy IV. That's the last sword bringer is the last uh, sword he gets before he becomes a paladin. All right, Nadia, let's read a couple of... Letters from the mailbag, which, by the way, if you ever want to send your own letter, uh, make sure to leave a comment in the show notes or send me a mail on Twitter. You can send hit me up on Twitter DM or email me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. All right. The first one is from Somatic Marker. Nadia, thank you for the great review on DQ Builders 2. I have played about 10 hours and am really enjoying it. The one complaint I have is the game can be uneven at times regarding how much direction tutorial provides the players. There are times in which the tutorial drags on and becomes annoying. However, there are other times in which little direction is given. The best example I can think of is when you come back to the Isle of Awakening. At one point, the NPCs ask for a chicken. I assumed a chicken was on the Isle of Awakening and spent 15 to 20 minutes canvassing the island with no success. After visiting the message boards, I found out that you were supposed to sail to an island you never visited, go to a specific area, and only then will you find a chicken. Again, loving the game overall. However, I find the uneven nature direction can be frustrating. That reminds me of one of the stars, uh, one of the moons in Mario Odyssey, where you have to look up at the sky for a while, and then it appears. Yeah, I remember that one. (laughs) That was a Prozidi sketch. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Oh, I love his stuff. But uh, I do remember the chicken. And uh, I do kind of remember they told you to go to the the island. So it's very easy to miss, I guess. But I will say, I do agree that maybe, you know, the game could be obtuse with its instructions sometimes. And I wonder if maybe I got through it so easily and so cleanly because a lot of it was muscle memory from the first game, uh, despite all the quality of life improvements. But uh, yeah, it's 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 still a great game overall, and it does definitely make you kind of sit through a tutorial, that's for sure. Yeah, you're extolling the virtues over of it over on Slack in our news writer Eric Van Allen, who you may recall for from a few episodes ago, was like, "What if I told you that Dragon Quest Builders Two is one of the top five games of 2019?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's so far, it's probably my favorite game of the year. Oh, that's really. Those those are big words from you, Nadia. What did I like a Dragon Quest game? Yeah, I know, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know it has done me like you know good to see that I'm not exactly alone here. It's a pretty very, it's pretty much a very well received game right now. But so was Dragon Quest Eleven. It's they're generally good games. Yeah, of the games that have come out so far, I think the clearest front runners for kind of game of the year consideration is probably the Outer Wilds and Resident Evil Two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, really like the Outer Wilds, although I think that maybe playing it on Xbox puts me at a disadvantage because it does have some some issues with hitching and, and stuff that I don't think is on the PC version. But uh, I, I haven't played in a little while, so I have to see if they fix that because, of course, it came out right before E3. Uh, but it was it's, it's a really great game, and I recommend that one as well. Yeah, there are a lot of games that came out this year that are really good, but uh, have like I have my problems with in various ways, like Mario Maker 2 will be up there but like i think there are a lot of comments and concerns that one could have about mario maker 2 uh same with devil may cry 5 um same with right. some other games but you know so by and large it's been a little bit of a weird game but there have definitely some been some gems and it seems like dragon quest builders 2 is one of them yeah um i actually since i was busy with builder 2 i didn't get a chance to play mario maker 2 actually oh my god nadia you gotta play that one come on but everyone on there acts like satan <laughs> oh my gosh uh, mario maker 2 makes me feel like a bad mario player because <laughs> i put it on super it's expert fault. and it's wanting me to do things like throw the shell against the wall and bounce off it in midair to get to it and you're just like what no um why did you see well just today on slack i put up the the video of someone built a literal wall of hammer brothers like three miles wide and three miles thick like and you had to jump through this this barrier of hammers and someone did it i mean you have to do it if you want to put up your 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 level for for download but they showed like footage of people doing it i 
it's funny how the Kaizo Mario community went went crazy for two seconds about the changes in Mario Maker 2, and then they fell right into it. All right, FTL Mantis says, in response to Kat's hope that the game will get more tactical as it goes on, I think it... I think that when the power spike for having not having a skill is big, which is the fundamental requirement for interesting skills, it becomes very difficult to have meaningful tactical experiences. I think this is because a single opponent or player character having not having a certain skill can shift the playing field too much in complicated situations, making certain situations trivial or impossible from the start. Yeah, I will say, though, that I have one character in Three Houses who is very overleveled, and whenever I see a particularly sticky tactical situation, I just send them in. <laughs> Isn't that the like a uh, Fire Emblem story older than time though? Just you have that one character who is always just perpetually overleveled. But then again, I'm thinking like Seth, for example, in whichever game he was in, and he's what I think of when I think of overleveled uh, uh, Fire Emblem characters, him or uh, Frederick from Awakening. And I guess eventually they kind of lose their power. They're meant to more be a crutch to lean on until you get later in the game. But that's what I think of. Yeah, the Protags in Awakening and uh, Fates are pretty crazily overpowered. Uh, In Blazing Sword, they were powerful, but they weren't, you know, game-breakingly powerful. Right. Unless people want to, like, Fire Emblem fans want to jump on here and start yelling at me. It's like, oh, yeah, Lynn totally was game-breakingly powerful, (laughs) or as it were. She was a little bit powerful. She, she was, was quite but... powerful, especially once she got promoted uh, to yes. her special lord status or whatever. But uh, I would say that the main character in Three Houses is extremely powerful, especially if you uh, level her up. She gets an exclusive class and such. So Oh, cool. I look yeah. forward to it. Yeah, I know. So uh, whenever I want to just bait in lots of enemies, I send them in and just wait. <laughs> they get to be a buzzsaw. <laughs> <laughs> Though I'm sure that's not as much the case in hard mode. This is like, oh, there's only one of her and like 50 of us. Let's get her, boys, and just end up all bleeding on the ground. I can confirm that the maps definitely get more complex as time goes on. Okay, so you, yeah, because you were worried about that, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, you still are a little bit of a death ball, but there are objectives that require you to go thinking for sure. Cool. All right, then. Uh, thanks for the letters. Make sure to us any emails or comments that you have, and we may read them on the show, cat.bail at usgamer.net. All right. Axe of God is a US Gamer podcast. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Make sure to rate us and review us. We always like to hear it. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks to Nadia and to Mike, as always, for coming on the show and talking about all things RPGs. We'll be back next week to fully review Fire Emblem Three Houses. But until then, thanks for listening and happy adventuring. Mm